0: This is episode 53 of the Higher Christian Life broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. When we look at the condition of our world and the spiritual temperature of the church, the clear assessment is that we need revival. Now, not a revival meeting or a revival as a -a once-in-a-year event, but a revival akin to an awakening like our nation has experienced in the past. It's a recapturing of lost spiritual ground. And we should note, the process of revival is the quickest way to experience the higher Christian life that we've been talking about. Why? Because the definition of a revival is a spiritual awakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. And this spiritual awakening comes from a resurgence of faith in the believer. Now, not faith for salvation, but faith in the word and character of God. It's taking God at his word and living your life in accordance with his truth and not how we think or feel or what we want. And the key to revival and the higher Christian life, as with most things in our walk with Christ, is faith. So how can we learn about faith? Well, one of the best ways is to find someone who has lived by faith and learned from them. And that's exactly what we're gonna be doing today we will look at the life of George Mueller and see if we can glean some insights into the all-elusive life of faith as we strive for revival and embrace the higher Christian life. Let's jump right in, shall we? You know, it has been kind of a a strange time we've been going through the last several months. Um, A lot of you that I've spoken with have gone through some personal tragedies or personal bad times. You've had some spiritual attacks. The fact is that it's just the life in which we live right now. Things get a little crazier. Things uh, get more out of whack. Our nation seems to be kind of unbalanced. And if you're not careful and you spend time uh, looking at um, political pundits or economic forecast, or Fox News, or any news source, after a while, focusing on that stuff and not the glories of Christ can depress you. It can kind of get you down. Where's the hope? What's going on here? And how is this uh, supposed to affect me? And it would begin to look at life with jaded eyes rather than the eyes of someone who lives in the kingdom of God. And so one of the antidotes for that is to experience revival. And we're not talking about a revival or revival service. If you grew up in a Baptist church like I did, revival services are once a year kind of special events where we hire this professional hitman to come in and share the gospel to people we're afraid to share the gospel to. And so what we're supposed to do is bring our lost friends to church for the first time, we asked him in a year to come to church for a Sunday through, used to be a Sunday, an entire week service. And they, they, it's like Sunday through Wednesday now, and sometimes it's even less than that. And so he preaches evangelistic messages, and we let somebody else pretty much do what we're supposed to be doing. And as we talked about last week, as I prefaced giving you the book um, uh, about evangelism, one of the reasons why it's so difficult for us to share Christ is because we're stagnated spiritually. We're we're struggling with our own problems and things going on in our own life, and the joy that should be bubbling up in us isn't. And so it's kind of hard to share something organically that just you're overwhelmed with with joy if we're not actually experiencing that ourselves. And, of course, the biblical solution to that is to experience revival. It begins with you. It begins with me. It's a personal revival. It's not a corporate revival. Those come later. It's it's an individual revival. If I experience revival and Debbie experiences revival, and then pretty much a a majority of our church experienced revival, then we can say that our church is in revival because it's made up of just individual members. And if a group of churches experience it, then a geographic area experiences revival, and pretty much it can flow over into an awakening or, or a national revival. Who knows what God can do when people like you and I are willing to try to figure out how revival takes place, how we can maybe recapture our spiritual life that we've let grow stagnant and see what happens. There's a couple questions when we're dealing with revival that we're going to look at today. Well, here's some questions we're going to be looking at over the next couple of weeks, but we're only going to deal with one of these today. And the question is simply this, what is a Christian revival? I mean, what, is it, what does it look like? How does it feel? How does it happen? And why is it so important in the life of a believer? It's like a recommitment. It's like a A refocusing of our spiritual life. Uh, What are some examples of past revivals? You may have experienced some in your own walk with Christ. Our nation has experienced some. Maybe you've been in a small church setting or your family has had some sort of a spiritual revival. I mean, what are some examples of those in the past? And how do we know when a revival takes place? What are the fruits of a revival? How can we say, wow, That person, their faith is revived. They're revived. There's a a bright light in their eyes. They just seem excited and happy and full of joy all the time. And they, They seem to smile when normally what they did is frown and growl all the time. I mean, what are the fruits of revival? What happens during a revival? And how does the spiritual revival take place? Is there a checklist? Are there certain things that if, if we do the following 10 things, if we get like six of them done, revival takes place. Seven's even better. But if there's only five and a half, it doesn't. I mean, how do we know when revival takes place? Is it something that just comes from God? And by the way, it does. But is there something we can do to prepare ourselves for, to make ourselves most likely to experience that kind of revival? And if a revival does take place in my life, How does my life change? How does my view of the world change, the view of my spouse change, or my children, my own future, my own pride, the things that I wanna do? How does does my relationship with everybody else I know change? Uh, What kind of spiritual fruit will I bear that maybe I'm not bearing now? I mean, what are the effects of revival? And the most important question is simply this, how can we begin the process of experiencing revival today? Now, if you're at the top of your game spiritually, that you've never been closer to the Lord than you are right now, hallelujah. You know, revival for you would mean that you would initially go into uncharted territories to boldly go where you've never gone before. If you, are, if you aren't on the top of your game, that there's been a time in your life when you've been more fervent, more at peace, bore more for fruit than initially for you. A revival would be to recapture lost ground and then move into an area where we've never experienced him before. I mean, what does it actually look like? Definition of revival is this. It's a spiritual awakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. It doesn't necessarily mean you're in gross, immoral sin. It simply means that you've come, come, become complacent with your spiritual life. We would call it lukewarm with your spiritual life. You have plateaued in your spiritual life. Yes, I remember when it was better at one point in time, but I also remember when it was much worse, and I'm kind of okay where it's at right now. And uh, when that happens, what we need is like a jumpstart to move us back out of complacency, out of apathy, into a time of, of spiritual awakening. Let me read to you just a little bit of what a Christian revival is. It says, spiritual revival, or revival refers to a spiritual reawakening from a state of dormancy or stagnation in the life of a believer. We got that. It encompasses the resurfacing of a love for God an appreciation of God's holiness, a passion for his word and his church, a convicting awareness of personal and corporate sin, of a spirit of humility, and a desire for repentance and growth in righteousness. Well, that sounds like what happens when you first get saved. And revival invigorates and sometimes deepens a believer's faith, opening his or her eyes to the truth in a fresh new way. It generally involves the connotation of a fresh start with a clean slate, marking a new beginning of a life lived in obedience to God. The most exciting part about revival is it breaks the charm and the chain and the power of this world, which has a tendency of blinding the eyes of men and generates in us both a will and a power to live in his kingdom and not in this kingdom. There are individual revivals and corporate national church revivals. For example, in the United States, the first great revival called the First Great Awakening produced an upsurge of devotion among Protestants in the 1730s and the 1740s. Do you remember reading about that? And carved in our nation a permanent mark on America religion. Bars would shut down. People refused to work on Sundays. Crime In various cities once revival took place in the first and second great awakenings decreased unlike it's happening today because people weren't interested in sin much anymore because they'd had this revival in their heart revival resulted from authoritative preaching that deeply moved the church members with a convicting awareness of personal guilt and the awesome wonderful gift of forgiveness and salvation Sinners in the hands of an angry God, if you ever read that sermon, is dry and it is in your face, and it brought about the first great awakening. Revival, in many respects, replicates a believer's experience when he or she is saved. Think about it. Revival starts with the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It creates an awareness of something missing or something wrong in the believer's heart that only God can make right. Not more Bible study, not going to church more, not more doing things harder that didn't work in the first place, but only that God can make right. And therefore, as with salvation, when we recognize that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we respond in such a way from the heart, acknowledging our need, asking the Holy Spirit to, to fix whatever's wrong in our life, to draw back the veil this world has placed on us so that we can see him for who he really is and then move forward in a newness of faith. I, um, I need a spiritual revival. I think no matter where you are in your spiritual life, how can it be wrong or not beneficial to know more and love more and be empowered more by God himself. True? And again, it doesn't mean you're involved in gross immoral sin and, okay, I'm going to go back to my wife. It can simply be a matter of complacency. Yeah, I know I was more devoted to him, but things are tough and I'm tired and I don't have the time, and and so I'm just going to kind of move on with something else. How does revival take place? What are some of the key elements of revival? Well, the first one, of course, is faith. Faith. All of a sudden, we trust God for things we didn't trust him for before. You know, I I find my happiness and my self-worth in raising my children. I find my happiness and my self-worth and accumulating wealth. I find my happiness and my self-worth and, and building a business or being really good in this sport or, or some, whatever it is. And then all of a sudden when our faith changes, we realize that, yeah, those things are good, but my happiness and my self-worth and my joy comes from my relationship with him and when all of a sudden it becomes number one in our life, then it manifests itself in so many different ways. It's faith in God, not faith for salvation. That someone who is revived has already received, but faith in the word and character of God. You know, we've talked a lot about the higher Christian life. We've talked a lot about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the, the The steps for the higher Christian life and the steps for being filled with the Holy Spirit and the steps for experiencing revival pretty much had this line that runs through every one of them. And the line is the fact that my faith and trust has to be in what God says and not what I think is going to happen. I have to live my life according to the mandates of God in obedience and trust him and his word rather than live my life my way and ask him to bless my decisions, my choices, and my wants and what makes me happy. Revival takes place exactly the same way. So today, what I want to do is just look at one element of revival, and that is the idea of faith. The word, of course, is pistis in the uh, in the Greek. And of course, the easiest way to do that is to try to find someone who has walked where we want to walk and learn from them. Now, here's the dilemma, and I've learned this this last year. Here's the dilemma of striving for a higher Christian life, striving for to get back to where you once were. And it's the fact that there's not too many people we know that are doing that. There's not too many people we know that live lives any better than we are, that are closer to the Lord than we are. And so therefore, when we're looking for a mentor or we're looking for someone that we can sit down and ask questions of, you yeah, well, what about this? And how did you handle that? And this dichotomy between seeking the kingdom of God and yet having to provide for my family. I mean, how did you work that out in your life? There's really nobody we can ask. Back during the Keswick phase, in the latter part of the 18th century where revival had taken place, they actually called that the Third Great Awakening. There were tons of people you could ask. You could go to conferences where people were following the Lord with abject sincerity and God was doing amazing things in their life and you could actually write them letters and they would write you back about specific problems. And unfortunately, there's there's no movement like that today. There's, There's not a bunch of people that we can do that to and so therefore it makes us difficult it makes it difficult for us to practically know what to do because all we can understand from scripture is theory but when i have that theory is played out in the flesh there's not my father or your father or my pastor or this friend who is where we want to be spiritually because we pretty much hang around people just like us so what do we do now when it comes to faith, I know no other man who emulated a life of faith than George Mueller. And I do hope that uh, you recognize his name. You know, who is George Mueller and why in the world should we care about how he lived? You know, I was born in 1955, so I've experienced the last half of, the, of this previous century. George Mueller was born in 1805 and pretty much and died in 1990, or 1898 and lived the entire century. He saw some of the Great Awakenings. He saw the problem with the Civil War. He um, lived over in England. He dealt with some issues that we can't even imagine, and yet he is the go-to hero of the faith in the last several hundred years. And so before we look at his life, I want to give you a biblical foundation for why it's okay to do this. Well, you can only look at the life of Jesus or Paul or Peter. No, no, it's not really true. And let me show you why. There's basically two ways to be successful. Uh, as parents, our mentors, what we do is, as a parent, is we try to teach our kids to do the things that we have done that worked well. And we try to teach our kids not to make the same mistakes we made. True hey, listen, I know I know what you're feeling. I felt the same way when I was 17 years old, and here's what I did, and here's how it turned out. You don't want to do that. You don't want to make that mistake. You need to make your own mistakes, but it's crazy for you to make the same mistakes I made. As a matter of fact, let me show you what I did to soar over these mistakes, and maybe you can learn from me. Unfortunately, in our culture today, that seems judgmental. So we don't talk about mentors. We don't set ourselves up as examples. And even parents have a tendency of, well, they need to make their own mistakes and I don't really want to say anything because I don't want to judge them. And we fail people when we do that. We learn from others. We learn from them what worked and we learn from them what didn't work. And if it didn't work for this person, I don't really want to try it. I think what I want to do is hang with somebody who, It did work. In business, if you wanted to, um, I don't know, if you wanted to to start a business and you wanted to take a course for somebody to teach you how to start a business, would you take a course from somebody who was wildly successful or somebody who was doing worse than you? Well, that's kind of obvious. I don't want to learn from somebody who's doing worse than me because what can they teach me? I want to learn somebody who has achieved what I want to achieve and what they say works for them, boy, I'm going to do. And if I, if I say, well, I want to try it this way, and they say, I tried it that way, it didn't work, it's going to be a disaster, stop. It would be foolish of me to go my own way and not listen to someone who has already been there before me. Works exactly the same way spiritually. It works exactly the same way in parenting, and it is biblical. Let me just show you a couple verses here. Let's look at uh, 1 Corinthians 11. What an arrogant phrase in our culture Paul is making here. An arrogant phrase. He says this, imitate me. What? Do what I'm doing. Act like I act. Walk and think and speak like I speak, just as I am imitating Christ. I am trying to be like him, and you need to try to be like me. Because if I'm like him, and you're like me, then you'll be like him. Okay, I'm kind of troubled. I mean, what is he talking about here? What is he specifically referring to? What does this mean in context? And as we know, the best way to figure that out is go back a couple verses and see exactly what Paul was talking about. In this case, we go back to the last few verses of chapter 10. And here's what Paul starts out. He begins by making some general statements and commands about everybody. This is just for everybody here. He says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Okay, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God. Okay, and then he makes it personal. Let me show you how to do that because obviously you're struggling with it. Just do what I do, follow me, and then you'll understand how it's done just as I, this is Paul talking, also please all men in all things, you be like me. And I don't seek my own profit, you be like me, but the profit of many that they may be saved. Let me sum it up for you. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. I'm imitating someone, I am successful in this area. You imitate me, and then you'll learn for me to be more like Christ. So, mimites is the word, and it is a strange word. It means, which we get the word mimic from. It means to imitate, to mimic. It means to copy the words and behavior of another. Really, so what is Paul saying to believers who are not quite far along in their faith as he is? Well, what you need to do is find somebody who is and hook your wagon to them, and as they follow Christ and you follow them, then you'll grow in your relationship with Christ to the point that somehow, now while you're being disciple, you'll get to the point where you'll be able to disciple other people and say, hey, you follow me as I follow you. Christ. Works exactly the same way in parenting. And this is not the only time this phrase is used in Scripture. Here's one even more pointed. 1 Corinthians 4, 14 through 16. I do not write these things to shame you, Paul says, but as my beloved children, I warn you, For though you might have 10,000 instructors in Christ and be taking all these courses on the internet, yet you do not have many fathers. There's a parenting motif here. For For in Jesus Christ, I have begotten you through the gospel. Therefore, because I've done that, I, Paul, urge you. Same words he used here in... Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, I urge you, I beg you to imitate me. Imitate me. Don't be like your being, imitate me. Hebrews chapter 6, I love this one. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you've shown towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. You're doing some good things. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. You are ministering, and we want to keep you ministering, even during tough times. But we're doing this because we don't want you to become sluggish, lazy, apathetic slothful. How do I not become sluggish, lazy, apathetic, and slothful? Imitate those who aren't that way. Do what they're doing. Find someone that's on fire for the Lord, that has experienced revival in their own life, and find out how in the world they did it, and imitate and copy what they're doing. Imitate, not just Paul, but those who through faith and patience are inheriting the promises of God. Get the point? It's a biblical truth. One more. And you became followers, imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe you followed us, you imitated Christ, so much so that you grew in your faith to now others are imitating you. You became an example during great persecution of how believers are supposed to live. So in Macedonia and Achaia and other places where they're suffering what you are suffering, they can look at you and go, yes, that's how a Christian is to respond. So... What can we learn? Well, a couple things. Simply this, there are two ways to be successful. I want, you to, I want you to think this through. This is very logical statements. Two ways to be successful. One, find someone who is successful and imitate them. Makes sense. I want to be, a, um, I, want to be a, I don't know, an Olympic gymnast. Can't think of anything more ridiculous for me. Uh, an Olympic gymnast. So what do I do? Do I find somebody who's terrible at it? Or do I find somebody who has been an Olympic gymnast, won the gold as an Olympic gymnast? And I want to know how did you do that? I mean, what did you do? Well, I got up every morning at four o'clock in the morning and I put in eight hours a day and this, and I studied this and read these books and I had this diet that was this way. And I I hired some other coaches. And if you want to do what I've done, this is what I had to do. It's a good beginning for you. Oh, okay. So if I want to be successful, then I need to find somebody who's successful and do what they did to become successful. It works in the business world. It works as being an apprentice, as a plumber, an electrician, or even as an accountant. You know, uh, this is what you need to do. Um, Okay, it just makes logical sense. But there's another way to do it, and that's to find somebody who is a dismal failure. Find somebody who you don't want to be find somebody who is not successful and do the exact opposite of what they did. Be successful, I follow those that are successful. To be successful, I don't follow those that are unsuccessful. This works in the spiritual life. It also works in our secular life, in our business life. We know this logically. And it works exactly that same way in the Christian life. So, if I want to be successful... Let me begin by looking at someone who was. And for me, the man is George Mueller. George Mueller was probably the most faith-filled believer that God dramatically, tangibly, visibly honored his faith in such a way that we still talk about it today. So if I look at the life of George Mueller, and he wrote a lot about his life, and I'm so glad he did, what can I learn? And can I learn anything about the Lord in faith through George Mueller's life, and if I do, will the Lord honor my faith the same way he did George Mueller, or is God a respecter of persons? Is God selfish, and will God only give it to that person and not another? You know that's not true. And if God will honor my faith, will allow me to experience revival, will allow me to to see his hand move, like he did in the life of George Mueller, then what am I waiting for? Why am I still languishing around not doing what I know Christ has for me? This is the most famous picture of George Mueller. Uh, uh, Has kind of a goofy smile, but um, he was a man no different than you and I. Literally, no different. Than you and I. He was born in 1805 in Prussia, which is now a part of Germany, and he died in 1898 at the age of 92. In his life, God accomplished absolutely incredible. Things. He was an evangelist, and he was also founder and director of an organization called the Ashley Down Orphanages, which is in Bristol, England. And during his lifetime, they cared for, and this is like from infancy to 18 or 16, they cared for over 10,000 orphans during his life. 10,000. To show you how huge that number is, during the life of George Mueller, that there were only uh, 36 hundred orphans cared for anywhere in all of England. And twice that number under the age of eight were in prison. Because what happens if your parents died and an orphanage didn't take you in, you went to prison where they took care of you and you worked in the labor houses and your life was horrific. I mean, it's just the way it was back then. Uh, He established 117 schools You know, we think it's kind of a big deal when a pastor uh, establishes a Christian school in his church. Usually Christian schools are a drain on the church, and usually pastors who begin Christian schools, it shortens their tenure as uh, being a pastor because it it causes problems within the congregation oftentimes. He did 117 of those and offered education, Christian education, to 120,000 children, most of them orphans. You know, in the days of the megachurch, we might not think that's that big a deal, but it was huge back then. He established something called the Scriptural Knowledge Institution for Home and Abroad. We would call that today something like impact ministries because we like short little names. And again, distributed 285,000 Bibles, 1.4 million New Testaments, 244,000 other religious tracts that were translated into 20 different languages, supported missionaries like Hudson Taylor and many others like that, and did every single bit of this through prayer, through prayer alone, just prayer. He never solicited solicited gifts. He never sent out newsletters with pre-printed envelopes in them, like, how about a little this way? He never did any of that. He never told people with a long face how tough it was in the ministry. As a matter of fact, when people would say to him, um, hey, how are things going, Reverend Mueller? How can we help you? He would never tell them. He would simply say, the Lord provides for all our needs and he would wait on God to move. And his life was a time of incredible victories, and it was a time of anguishing trials as God was molding his faith and testing his faith and never once failed him. Although God many times waited until the 11th hour and 59th minute to respond. This is is the life of George Mueller. It is estimated that during his lifetime that he was involved in the ministries, that he prayed in over $113 million. $1 million dollars. You and I, can't. we're afraid to even ask God to pray in our car payment if things get kind of bad. And we manipulate and try to figure things out and put it on a credit card, take out a loan, we'll worry about it later. Not George Mueller. George Mueller prayed in a, a huge and unbelievable amount of money back in their times. Let me tell you a little bit about him. He was uh, saved at the age of 20. He was an agnostic. He wanted nothing to do with the life uh, of Jesus Christ. Somebody took him to a prayer meeting. And at the prayer meeting, God got hold of him and he gave his life to Christ. And so he immediately surrendered himself to missions. And so what he did is he said, okay, I wanna go into missions and I think God is leading me to the Jews. So he joined this mission society that basically ministered to Jews. And while he was there, he realized that, no, why am I limiting it to Jews? There's people everywhere that need faith. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and resign from this mission society. I'm going to pastor a church, which is the best thing I can do. And I'm going to ask the Lord to send me to the worst place possible so I can set up like a a lighthouse in the middle of darkness to tell other people about Jesus. He was sent to a town called Bristol. Bristol was a... um, It was not a paradise. It's still not a paradise in England. It was a town that had a a faulty uh, drainage system. It was uh, a town that was very poor. It was very blue-collar. There was pollution everywhere. It was really a uh, rather uh, nasty place to live. When he got there, there was an epidemic of cholera that broke out. I thought this was kind of amazing. And his wife, his new wife, of course, was not at the point he was at at this time, was afraid that George was going to catch cholera and die like everybody else was because people were dying by the dozens every single day. And George Mueller committed himself to holding hands with those people infected with cholera to pray for their healing. He did get sick. He did not die. But when the cholera epidemic passed, in the town of Bristol, this man, this young man, realized that there were thousands of orphans. Because both parents had died and left these orphan kids. They were just on the street, were nowhere to, nowhere to go. There was no social services at that time. There was no a foster care at that time. There was nothing. And there were thousands of orphans that were there. And so George Mueller and his wife says, we have to do something. God sent us here to be... Light and darkness, we have to do something. So they created these orphanages, five buildings that were built um, by the Lord. And what George wanted everybody to know is the reason why he decided to help the orphans was not just to better the life of the orphans, but what he wanted to do is show people tangibly that God means what he says and says what he means and his promises can be met. If, he, if George was somewhere else, it might have been another ministry that he started to just let God to, to fund it through the answering of prayers. He summarized his life this way. He says, purpose of the orphanages, the purpose of my life is to display with open proof that everyone can see that God can be trusted with the practical affairs of this life. God can be trusted not with my place in heaven that you'll come and receive me unto yourself, but also concerned about where your car keys are, how your bills are going to be paid, how the illness, the fever that your child has right now, that we can take everything to him in prayer. Here's how we summed it up. The chief inn for which the institution was established, and that institution of, Christ, of uh, uh, Christian knowledge that he did had five prongs to it, one of them was the orphanages, is that the, is, the, is that the church would see the hand of God stretched out on our behalf in answer to prayer and to prayer alone. Prayer and prayer alone. Let me, um, let me read you a summary of uh, George Mueller's life that will hopefully give you a glimpse into the kind of man that he was. It says, George Mueller was a native German. He was born on September 27, 1805, and lived almost the entire 19th century. He died on March 10, 1898, at the age of 92. He saw saw the great awakening of 1859, in which he said led to the conversion of hundreds of thousands. He did follow-up work for D.L. Moody, preached for Charles Spurgeon, and inspired the missionary faith of Hudson Taylor. Quite a legacy. He spent most of his life in Bristol, England, and pastored the same small church for over sixty six years in eighteen thirty four he was twenty eight years old. He founded the Scripture Knowledge Institute for home and Abroad because he was disillusioned with the liberalism and worldly strategies like going into debt of existing mission organizations. Five branches of this institute developed: one a school for children and adults to teach bible knowledge, two Bible distribution, three missionary support. Four tracks in book distribution and five to board, clothe, and scripturally educate destitute children who have lost both parents. The accomplishment of all five branches were significant, but the one in which he was known around the world in his lifetime and still today was his ministry to orphans. He built five large orphan houses and cared for over 10,000 orphans in his life. When he started in 1834, there were accommodations for 3,600 orphans in all of England, and twice that many children under eight were in prison. One of the great effects of Mueller's ministry was to inspire others so that, quote, 50 years after Mr. Mueller began his work, at at least 100,000 orphans were cared for in England alone. He did all this while he was preaching three times a week from 1830 to 1898, at least 10,000 times. And when he turned 70, he fulfilled a lifelong dream of missionary work, and for the next 17 years, until he was 87, he traveled to 42 countries, preaching on average of once a day and addressing some 3 million people, up until his 87th birthday. From the end of his travels in 1892 until his death in 1898, he preached in his church and worked for the Scriptural Knowledge Institute. At age 92, not long before he died, he wrote this, I have been able every day and all the day to work, and that with ease, as 70 years since. He led a prayer meeting at his church on the evening of Wednesday, March 9th, 1898. The next day, a cup of tea was taken to him at seven in the morning, but no answer came to the knock on the door. He was found dead on the floor beside his bed. The funeral was held the following Monday in Bristol. Where he served for 66 years, quote, from the newspaper. 10,000 people reverently stood along the route of a simple procession. Men left their workshops and offices, women left their elegant homes and humble kitchens, all seeking to pay a last token of respect. A thousand children gathered for a service at the orphan house number three, for they had now lost for a second time what they considered their father. Listen carefully. He read his Bible from end to end almost 200 times. He had prayed in millions of dollars for the orphans and never asked anyone directly for money. He never took a salary in the last 68 years of his ministry, but trusted God to put into people's heart to send him what he needed. He never took out a loan or went into debt and neither he nor the orphans ever went hungry all of that was done by faith. George Mueller. There's a process going on in him. When when he saw the plight of the orphans, he's a poor man and he is uh, pastoring a small church. He and his wife got together and says, we have to do something. So they opened up their small little apartment to uh, what they call the breakfast club. And they basically brought kids in and they would feed them breakfast. It wasn't enough. The need was greater than what they could do. So they rented a second apartment. And uh, I'll show you a picture of that building in a few minutes. And they took in personally themselves, no organization behind them, 30 orphans. How would you like to have 30 orphans, maybe under the age of 10 living with you, that you take care of all their financial needs, you school them, you train them, you teach them You suffer the scorn of your neighbors that don't like you doing this, and you do it without ever asking anyone for a dime, taking no salary from your church, and trusting God to meet all your needs. When the neighbors began to complain about the orphans they were taking in, at that time they had rented some other buildings and were now dealing with 120, that they found a piece of land and they said, Lord, we would like to have this land and build an orphan, orphan house, but we will not go into debt. We will not ask for money. It will have to be on your time. And the rest, of course, is history. When he was struggling with all of this, he basically said, Lord, if your word is true, then I want to line my life up with your word. And here's four truths that he came up with. One, God takes care of those who live for him. What was your passage, George. Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Read that in context, what we wear, live, eat, all that's taken care. So therefore, Lord, I, I'm going to live by this passage. Number two, that we're to ask God and not man for help, because that way only God gets the credit. What was your passage, George, that made you believe in this commitment? Philippians 4.6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, not manipulation and marketing, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known not to man, but only unto God. And so George says, I want to live this way. Number three, that everything belongs to God. And if everything belongs to God, then we should give back to him what belongs to him. What's your passage, George? George. Luke 12, 23, the first part of that passage. Sell what you have and give alms. Alms, of course, means give to the needy, to the poor, or to charity. Therefore, they never um, had a savings account. They never had a rainy day fund. Every dime they ever had in their life, they invested in, uh, immediately into the lives of others. Number four, from the Lord's Prayer Give us this day our daily bread. And the passage was this, Oh, no man, anything, anything. God will meet our daily needs. I don't need to go into debt except to love one another. Because of that, because of those scriptures, George Mueller in his life committed himself to four truths that God honored in a profound way. Here they are. One, I will not receive any fixed salary. I will only trust God to meet my needs. And that's exactly what he did his entire life. Number two, I will never ask a human being for help. I'll never even hint about it. I'll never even manipulate it like the, you know, return envelope in the missionary letters. I'm not going to do any of that. I'm just going to ask God for help. He either will or he won't. He's either in this or he's not. He'll either take care of my needs or he won't. But I believe he will. Number three, I will never save money. Never because I'm only saving money for me. I'm saving money as a contingency. I'm saving my money because I don't believe God will provide tomorrow like he did today. So I need to take matters into my own hands. I will never save money, but I will spend it on the work of the kingdom of God. And number four, I will never go into debt. If it doesn't get built, it doesn't get built, but I will never go into debt and trust God to meet our daily needs. And if you know anything about the life of George Mueller, the rest is pretty much history. I want to close by sharing with you in the words of George Mueller why he even built these orphan houses by faith. And as you know, um, his passion in his life was to display with open proof that God could be trusted with the practical affairs of this life. And he figured out that with the need where he was at of orphans, the best way to do that was through an orphan house. This is the words of George Mueller. It seemed to me best done, the passion of my life, by the establishing of an orphan house. It needed to be something which could be seen, even by the natural eye. It's not something spiritual, so God's doing this in my heart that you can't relate to, but something that people can see and go, wow, God did this. Now, if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith obtained without asking any individual the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, there would be something which, with the Lord's blessing, might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God because being a testimony to the conscience of the unconverted of the reality of the things of God. Our faith would soar and the lost would realize there's something to this. This then was the primary reason for establishing the orphan house. The first and primary objective of the work was, and still is, that God might be magnified by the fact that the orphans under my care are provided with all they need, only by prayer and faith, without anyone being asked by me or my fellow laborers, whereby it may be seen that God is faithful still and hears prayers still. This is faith, is it not? It's faith. Now, unless you have studied the life of George Mueller, you don't really understand the magnitude of the houses that he built. This is back 150 years ago. This is not tra- you know, trusses coming in with big cranes and prefab uh, metal braces. This is, these are bricks laid one on top of each other by common laborers for the taking care of orphans, all paid for and advanced by God. Not one dime ever taken from anybody solicited. So I'm going to close by just showing you a few pictures here. Can you hit that light? Because it's very hard to see. When they first began, they uh, rented a small little apartment. And as I shared with you, it was on Wilson Street. This is in 1936, where they began housing the the first of the orphans. And so they rented other apartments that were next to them. So it gives you, this is that their apartment was the center one. And they began renting one after another the apartment buildings to be able to house the um, uh, additional kids. When it came to a point that the neighbors were complaining, they found a piece of land. They uh, asked the Lord to give them the land, the... uh, um, money came in just miraculously, not only for the land, but also for the building of the first orphan house. And this was the first Ashley Down House that was completed in 1847. It is no slouch house. It is absolutely massive, and you can't even see what's behind it. All of a sudden, they quickly outgrew that house, and so they continued to pray, and they said, Lord, we need more facilities. How about the Ashley Down House number two? which was completed 10 years later in 1857, totally debt-free, coming only from prayer and faith. This is that house. I mean, it looks like the size of the Biltmore, does it not? Just not as ornate. We need another one, Ashley Down House 3. This was completed in 1862. And that is this house, which is even larger than that. The testimony of these homes to the residents in and around Bristol and to people all over the world was incredible simply because they were able to see in front of them what faith and prayer can do. You know, I never really realized how big these houses were. An orphan house, you know, what am I thinking? Like, you know, I don't know, small little building or something of that nature, like like we see today in small little orphan houses or converted row houses. No, this is massive facilities. All the employees that came from that, all of those were fed and housed and paid for and educated through the prayers of one man. One man who devoted his life to faith, believing God, can do anything he wants to do beyond what we can even ask or think. There were two other houses that were built. I think the easiest way to show you, this was in 1870, just 18, eight years later. I think it's easier to show you on a map here. This was house number one. This was house number two. This of oh, this way was house number three. This is house number four and house number five. Can you see how massive they are? This is the legacy of George Mueller. And this, if anything, should encourage us that God can do anything he wants to someone who trusts him and devotes their life to him, especially in the area of faith. These are the questions that we're gonna be looking at over the next couple of weeks. Talked a little bit about what revival is. We're gonna talk a little bit more about how faith enters into that why it's so important in the life of a believer, why it's so important in our life, how we can trust him for more than we're trusting him now, how that passage in Ephesians chapter three can become real to us in a practical sense. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all we ask or think, according to the power that works in us in the church through all generations. If George Mueller would have asked me, hey, I think God's gonna build these orphan houses, and I was able to see the pictures of them. And you're only going to ask by prayer. That ain't going to happen, dude. They're never going to happen. I mean, it's just, that's never happened. It's never going to happen. And you're just an ordinary pastor, poor man. There's nothing special about you who decided to trust God. And yet look what God can do. And I believe he can do even greater things than this once we once he finds someone as willing to submit themselves to him as he was. Amen? Revival is something that will literally change our lives, change the lives of our family, and alleviate us from any guilt we have for not doing what we should do. Because when revival takes place, he'll be doing it through us in a way will overwhelm us with his joy and his goodness. Amen? Let me pray.